The rest of us will continue our series on, on what I've, I called foundations, foundations of the Christian faith. <coughs> and uh, since I think that, the, that Reformed theology is the basic faith that the Bible teaches, then the foundation of the Christian faith, to me, equals foundation of Reformed faith. And we have looked at what the Bible teaches concerning itself, the inspiration of the Scriptures, the inerrancy of the Scriptures. We've seen what the Bible teaches concerning providence and creation, which are the works of God. We've seen what the Bible teaches concerning Christ Himself, about man. And we have been looking at what the Bible teaches concerning salvation, from predestination all the way to glorification. And we saw that we can split that into two big categories, redemption accomplished, that's the, the, the predestination side, God's plan from all eternity, and the work of Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. And then redemption applied, which is the historical time in which Christ, through His Spirit, saves His people. So um, somebody was asking me, why, why do we talk about adoption in time? Didn't it happen in eternity past? No, it didn't. Uh, these doctrines are temporal. They're tied to time. God planned them in eternity past. God elected the people to be adopted in eternity past. But your adoption happens in history when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So there's a historical element. That's why it's called re- redemption applied. And we also have called it um, the order of salvation or to be fancy, use the Latin words, ordo salutis. And I want to start today with a quote from uh, well-known pastor Kevin DeYoung, um, answering the question, why study theology, systematic theology? Why spend so much time talking about these things? We talk about more practical things. And uh, I'll just start by saying these are very practical things. There's no doctrine in the Bible that's not a practical. It's not supposed to be lived out in daily life. So this is what the pastor Dion says, he says, why waste time on systematic theology when there are people who need to hear the gospel? Because those, who pe- those people need to hear the true gospel. If we are to proclaim the message, we must know what the message is. We owe it to each other, we owe it to other churches, and we owe it to the world to give a clear articulation of our faith. An open statement of the truth is what Paul called it. The Church of Jesus Christ, Burkhoff observed, should never seek refuge in camouflage, should not try to hide her identity. Clarity requires carefulness, carefulness requires precision, and precision requires systematic theology. Get into it. Stick with it. Pass it on. That's uh, um, why we study systematic theology. Uh, I don't know if you notice here, but we're a fan of the Puritans in a lot of ways. Uh, the word Puritan was not the title that they chose for themselves. They didn't like it. It was a derogatory title. The title they preferred for themselves was Precisionists. Catchy title, right? I mean, they had the, probably some market research, and so that's what we're going to go with, because they thought it was very important to be precise. So they, they took great pride in a good sense in the idea that we should be precise about the gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's why we take the time to talk about these things, to slow down and consider more difficult things, try to make sure we have these things straight in our minds, because these are gospel 
matters. These are things that we need to be sure as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and uh, we have divided this. So here we, the, we're talking about the doctrine of salvation. And then we subdivide that into two categories, redemption applied and redemption accomplished. And then we've divided that redemption accomplished category into ten further categories. And we've covered quite a few of them. We covered one through five, and then seven, if you remember a few weeks ago in our series on 1 John, we covered adoption in that, uh, in that sermon. So um, we've looked at what effectual calling is, regeneration, repentance unto life, faith in Jesus Christ, justification. And remember, this is not as a logical order. Some of these things are happening at the same time. But this is how to think logically about the doctrine of salvation. Lord willing, this morning we're going to look, take a look at the definitive uh, sanctification and progressive sanctification, leaving just um, and um, perseverance in, in holiness. I forgot to put that in, in red. Now, it is a very ambitious plan. I'm pretty sure we're not going to get through all this, but that's you no, know, we still can plan to do that. Yeah, Nick is very surprised that we may not get through all of this. And that if we get through it, the only thing left is glorification for us. So, any questions about the things that I've said so far? Not about what I've not said yet, but what I've said so far. All right. So let's start with the, the idea of definitive sanctification. It's not a title that we often use. Now, when we think of sanctification, we usually think of the lifelong process of being conformed to Jesus Christ of dying to sin, of living unto righteousness. That's really when the word sanctification is used. That's what we think about. But the Bible also speaks of sanctification as an act rather than a process. Something that happens immediately instead of something that happens throughout our life. And that's why it's called definitive. It's at a point in time. A few passages that teach that. Acts 20, verse 32 Paul is preaching or talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And he, right, he speaks of that as an accomplished thing. Who are, is a called a periphrastic perfect, who are in the state of having been sanctified. So he talks about as, as something that already happened to them, and it's complete, and it's done. So they have been sanctified. Uh, Acts 26, 18, um, God speaking to Paul as what his duty, his goal, his mission would be. He says this, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith. The same thing. Those that are in a state of having been sanctified and then 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul says, Such were some of you, but were washed, but you were sanctified. Talking about an accomplished thing that already happened. So, there's a sense that we are already completely sanctified. It's an act that already happened at the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. Definitive sanctification teaches that at the moment the Christian believes in the Lord Jesus Christ... He dies to sin and is, complete, and is liberated from sin. Sin no longer has dominion over him. Now, this doctrine does not teach that the Christian actually achieves 
personally and existentially as we live this life now, sinless perfection the moment he trusts in Christ. That's not what this doctrine teaches. It does teach, though, that every Christian, at the moment he becomes a believer, by virtue of his union with Christ, is instantly established as saint. And sin no longer has dominion over him. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 6, 10 through 14, where he says, For the death that he died, talking about Christ, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Notice he doesn't say make yourself dead to sin, work at being dead to sin. He says reckon, account yourself, recognize that you're dead to sin. Recognize that that is your reality. But alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from dead, the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall, have, shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. To that sin does not have dominion over those that have come to know Jesus Christ. They've been called saints. They've been sanctified. They've been set apart There's a real breach with whom we were prior to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a real commitment to present ourselves to God as one alive from the dead. Paul is not talking about a hypothetical here. This is what God has done for us. This is what we are to pursue. Any questions on that? All right, so perhaps this is... um, I thought about drawing something... And showing up, but I think that would confuse more if I tried to draw something to show what I mean here. But think of justification. When, you're the, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're, the, you're justified. Justification is a declaration that you're not guilty, that your sins are forgiven. Okay, that's what justification is. But that's not enough. Justification brings us from being sinners to being neutral, right? Definitive sanctification talks about the fact that not only is our sins imputed to Christ, reckoned to be Christ on the cross, but that Christ's life is counted to be ours. And so we're not just neutral, we are 100% perfect in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. That's what definitive sanctification is, is that declaration that we're also 100% perfect in the sight of God, Christ, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ is. Because of his obedience. We, we emphasize the death on the cross, but we should also equally emphasize his perfect obedience in life. Because both of them are necessary for us to be in the presence of God as his people. Not just as forgiven, because that's not enough, but as perfect in his sight. Does it make sense? Any questions on that? All right. So... Talk about definitive sanctification. Now let's talk about progressive sanctification. And when we talk about progressive sanctification, we also need to talk about the doctrine that's become known as the perseverance of the saints. So eventually we're going to get there because that goes hand in hand with this idea that we're becoming more and more like Christ as we grow in the Spirit, as our faith grows in us as well. So progressive sanctification 
is a continuous process beginning at conversion and continuing throughout the Christian life. And since it is closed linked to repentance and faith, it includes two aspects. We're sanctified from sin. We see that in Romans 6, verses 5 and 6, verse 14, Romans 8, 13. So it's sanctification from sin and sanctification to God. Both of those have to be there. It's not just stop, no, sanctification from sin, but also is sanctification towards God. Not just dying to sin, but growing to righteousness, as our catechism says there. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in, the fear, in or by the fear of the Lord. So you see that idea of turning from sin and turning to the Lord with mirrors repentance as well. So repentance is a very important part of being sanctified. And the work of the, the work of sanctification is a work of grace. We're sanctified because God is gracious. Um, is a is a is a work of God's grace in us through His Spirit, and it's carried out by all three persons of the Trinity. Uh, the New Testament tells us that both Father, all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are involved in our sanctification process. Remember John uh, Jesus's prayer for His people in John seventeen seventeen. He's praying to the Father, right? And he says, "Sanctify them by Your truth. Your word is truth." But the the point there is that He is asking the Father to sanctify his people. In Ephesians 5, 25-26, in Paul's illustration of the relationship between the husband and wife, he talks about Christ and the church. Remember what Christ is doing for his church? He is sanctifying her. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, there Paul says that the Spirit is working, is transforming us, that we are being transformed from glory to glory. So here we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in us to be sanctified. And it's such a great work that takes all persons of the Trinity to be involved in our sanctifying work. Any questions so far? All right, so what's the extent of progressive sanctification? What does it involve? What parts of us are involved in progressive sanctification? Well, sanctification affects every part of man. So body and soul are involved in sanctification. Heart and mind are involved in um, sanctification. Inner man, outer man, to use different terms that the Bible uses, are involved in sanctification. But it's never complete in this life. It's something that we keep on pursuing. Uh, It would be great if later today you could read Westminster Confession, chapter 13. It talks about sanctification. In Larger Catechism 78, it outlines all these things there as well. Now, it is, uh, it is something that affects the entire person, but it's something that we need to grow into it. Right? Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I have already attained, talking about the pursuit of Christ, which is in his mind equal to sanctification. He hasn't already attained. What is he doing? He's pressing forward. That's what he's doing there. And we saw that in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, where Paul says, not Paul, John says that, the believer keeps on having to repent and continue to confess his sins and being forgiven and growing. And if you say you don't sin, that you've arrived at perfection, you are a liar. 
one of the, I think, most encouraging chapters in the Bible is one that I think took the author, it was very painful for the author to write. And it's actually the second half of Romans 7, particularly verses 14 through 25. Why is that? It's because Paul is telling us his experience as a believer. And you know that misery loves company, right? Uh, we always we feel better when we see that other people struggle the same way that we do. And if the Apostle Paul is struggling the same way that we do, that makes us feel a little better about our situation in life. But Paul is describing there his struggle with obedience as a saved man. And that he continues to grow in that, and that you know he gets to... In Romans 8, 1, he rejoices that there's no condemnation for him because he's in Christ Jesus, which is true of all of us. But he's talking about his experience as a believer. You can, you can read all the present tenses there in, in chapter 7, 14 through 25, which tells us that we all are struggling with sin as we grow in Christ. But the fact that we struggle is not something to be contented with. We need to keep on struggling. The moment we stop struggling with sin, that's the moment we lost. Does it make sense? Do you understand that? That the struggle is sanctification. The struggle means that you're not comfortable with sin. The struggle is that you're, means that you're fighting with it. The moment you say, you know what, I'm not going to struggle anymore. I'm not going to fight this anymore. means that you lost the battle of sanctification. You're not being sanctified anymore. And so, thank you, sorry, I, I got excited and no click my screen here. Since sanctification is incomplete in this life, and since the Christian is responsible to progress in sanctification, effort is required on the part of the Christian. So it's all of God's grace that we're sanctified, but we, also, we, we work. That grace causes us to work. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 are key here. Right? Uh, Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do the work. It's not simple. It's not easy. You do the work. It's hard work. For, in verse 13, it is God who is working you to will and to do of his good pleasure. So those two things go together. There's a, on the horizontal level, there's a synergy between God and man in, as we seek to obey him in his sanctification. But at the end of the day, it's all by his grace. So <coughs> as Luke says, at the end of the day, all that we say is we've just done what we're supposed to do. We know no pets on the back. Well, we've done some supernatural thing, superhuman thing. It's because it's all by God's grace. And as, as a result, the Christian life is described in Scripture as a warfare. You, know, you notice that uh, the Christian life is never described as a vacation in Hawaii. It's never described as lay on a hammock with the ocean breeze, just, you know, you know my poetic, I don't, I'm not a poet, I need help. The ocean breeze doing what? Huh? Man, the ocean breeze breezing on us. <laughs> That's never described that way. It's never described on, man, the Christian life is like having the most delicious ice cream. And there are, there's joys, there's stuff. But often when we talk about the nitty-gritty, it's warfare. It is planting a field. It is um, fighting a big enemy. It is boxing. It is running a marathon. So Charles tells us that in this progressive sanctification, we exert effort. As a, you've heard the expression, let go and let God. Right? It sounds super spiritual and just let go and let God. What does that mean? It means that God is going to zap you and all of a sudden you're going to be... 
So that flows out from a movement in England called the Keswick Revivals. Uh, and, and it's not really based on, on the scriptures. It, 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 it's let go and work hard at obeying God. There'll be a better way of saying that because God gives you the grace to do that. Right? So that's what we, we do. Any questions or comments before we continue? All right, so what are the means of our sanctification? How do we become sanctified? Well, the, the, the weapons of this spiritual warfare are the various means of grace that God has given us. You can look at that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, in Galatians 5, 16 through 25, in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. And our, our confession, our standards list three means of grace. We're going to talk about five. There's two that have uh, also been acknowledged in the Reformed world as the means that God uses to sanctify us. And they are ordinary. We don't like ordinary, right? right? We want our kids always to be the extraordinary student in class. Uh, when I used, it was a school principal, and we would screen kids for kindergarten, no parent sat across my desk. I, no, I think my kid is average, maybe a little below. No, every kid that was screened for kindergarten in the parent interview, they were the brightest kid to ever live. They actually might make to the moon by second grade, in the opinion of the parents. I mean, my, and as I got to talk to the kid, I realized he was already in the moon at that time of the interview, as far as where his mind was and so on. But God used the ordinary. Not necessarily, there are very few extraordinary moments in our lives. He used the ordinary means of grace. He's not... It's not going to be the raising somebody from the dead in our, in our front. It's not going to be the miraculous. It is the every week means of grace that God uses to transform us. His word, both read, but especially the preached word of God, is a means by which God works in our hearts. Uh, the Bible talks about the word being what enables us to examine our hearts, laying it open. It, it, it cleanses us, John tells us. It shows us Christ. So it's a means that God uses. Another means that God uses to sanctify us is prayer. Prayer for ourselves, prayer for others, and grace is given through that. A third means that our, our, state, uh, our standards list is the sacraments. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. that's a means of grace for us to grow. First, we tend to focus on 1 Corinthians 11 when we talk about the Lord's Supper, but 1 Corinthians 10 tells us a lot about the Lord's Supper and how it's a means of grace to us as a church. Baptism, once, this morning we're going to talk a little bit about how we participate in Red's baptism. There's, there's grace in that, in the ordinary means of pouring water on somebody's head. And then two that are not listed in our standards is uh, fellowship of the saints. Hebrews 10, 25 and following tells us that one of the means that God uses for us to persevere to the end is the assembly of ourselves together to worship and fellowship. And the, the severe, so there's these five super severe warnings in the book of Hebrews about walking away from the faith. The, the most severe one is in chapter 10 and follows the exhortation of being with one another. That when we forsake that assembly on a regular basis, then we're more likely to walk away from Christ. So one of the means that God uses to keep us in His hands is fellowship with one another. 
And the, fourth, the fifth one that's not listed in our standards, but I think is a means of providence, is a means of grace, is providence. Daily life. Um, what, what the Lord brings to us to make us more like himself. I, I think Hebrews 12, the first 10 verses or so, teach us that. So these are means of sanctification. Any questions or comments on that? Andrew. Because they're afraid of COVID. No, that's not that's not why they did that. I do not know. Uh, because they do talk about it in the directory of worship, which is a document that's not part of what's called the standards because we no president we haven't adopted the American Presbyterian Church has not adopted the directory of worship. But in the directory of worship it talks about the assembly of the saints as a means of grace, not only the worship, but the, the being together as well. Uh, the uh, three forms of unity, Andrew, the continental, no, so the European continent sort of thing, the Dutch churches, they include fellowship as a means of grace. So, any other questions or comments? All right, so we talked about the means, we talked about the extent. What is the fruit? What is it that we want to see in in sanctification. Um, Westminster Charter Catechism 36 is very helpful on this, and I'm just going to tell you what it lists. One of the fruit of sanctification is assurance of salvation. As we grow in Christ, we become more assured of, of our salvation, of, of His love for us, of God's which is interesting, because the more we grow in Christ, the more sin becomes exceedingly sinful. And we think that that would cause us to doubt our salvation more, but it doesn't. The more we go in Christ, the more sin becomes heinous to us, the more we are aware of God's love, because we, are, we, we become more aware of how much it took for God to save us out of the heinousness of our sin. Another, another result of our sanctification is peace of conscience. You know, uh, we grow in, we, 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 sin becomes exceedingly sinful, but we also grow in repentance. And the more we repent, the more peaceful of a conscience we're going to have. Uh, the scriptures talk about joy in the Holy Spirit as a result of our sanctification. Increasing grace and perseverance to the end. Those are the five results that our uh, catechism t- teaches us concerning um, uh, Sanctific- uh, the, the fruit of sanctification as we go on the day to day and sanctified. Yes, there is. Um, what would be a good description of what the conscience is for Christians? The conscience is that inward um, part of us that God put in us that's informed by our word and it causes us to stop and think and is what I'm doing in conformity to the word of God? The conscience is like the warning lights in your car dashboard. Now, the, the oil light comes on, and uh, you say, oh, maybe I should check the oil level and make sure that the oil level is correct. The light doesn't make the oil level be down. By the way, that's what it means. Okay, guys, that little light with the little drippy thing, that means you need to check your oil, just in case <laughs> you didn't know that. Um, one of our kids didn't know that, and the car now is a junkyard. So it wasn't teeny, so that you know. <laughs> um, the, 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 the little red light doesn't make your oil 
doesn't make your oil be down, but tells you there's something you need to check. Because sometimes our conscience needs to be educated. Like, it can be bothering us, but it's flashing about something that shouldn't be flashing. So if it's flashing, you should never go against it. You should stop. What the Word of God says about this thing? And, uh, but till, as long as it's bothering you, 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 you respect it. But then you educate it. But that's what the conscience is. It's a result of the law of God having been written in our heart. Not only the Christian, but the unbeliever also has. We also can come, call it um, uh, a, a sanctified common sense approach to things as part of our, our conscience. There. Any other questions or comments before we continue? All right. To these benefits, we can add... Well, these benefits add to the prospect of eternal rewards make, made, make the struggle of Christian sanctification abundantly worthwhile. The fact that these things happen to us is a little carrot for us to continue pursuing sanctification. So we're going to now talk about sanctification in the, in the context of persevering to the end. The fact that a true believer will continue to grow in Christ all the way till he sees his Savior face to face. That Christ is not going to lose any of his people, a doctrine that historically has been called perseverance of the saints, which is part of the doctrine of sanctification. Even that I could not dry, draw. I just got it from some sites so that you know. <laughs> <coughs> so what are other ways that this, that this idea that the Christians will persevere to the end, um, what other ways have this doctrine been called? Can you think of it? Eternal security. All right, what else? How else do people talk about this doctrine? Preservation of the saints. Okay, what else? Well, some people say once saved, always saved, right? That's how they talk about this, this doctrine, which is true. Once we put our trust in Christ, we will never be lost. Christ will always be our Savior, right? Um, Tilly, or somebody said perseverance of the saints. That's also talked that way. The emphasis that Christians will persevere and trust in Christ. Christians will not turn their faith on and off. But there's also another way to talk about it is to talk about it as the perseverance of God. The God is going to keep us to the end. The perseverance of the saints depends on the perseverance of God. It is because God is faithful in His love for the church, that the church perseveres in its love for God. You know, while people say, often ask, can a Christian lose his salvation? Well, that's not really the right question. The right question is, can God lose one of his people? It's the same question, right? It's exactly the same question, but from a different perspective. And, but asking that way shows the absurdity of the idea that somehow God is going to lose somebody. I really, really wanted to save him, but... Ah, he just escaped. That's what we're saying when we say that a Christian can truly lose his salvation. Uh, it's also being called preservation of the saints, like Nick brought out. Now, the perseverance emphasizes the activity of the Christian, our working to get to the end. Preservation emphasizes the activity of God. Now, the Christian is kept and guarded so that no one will be able to snatch him. Colossians uh, has this wonderful picture. And it says that we are doubly hidden in God. It says that we are in Christ's hand and with God's hand, the Father, around us. So in order for somebody to get us away from God as a true believer, they have to pry the hand of the Father off of us 
and pry the hand of the Son, the two persons of the Trinity. And that seems to be a very arrogant, proud thought that one could do that. Um, did somebody mention eternal security? Yeah. Um, that's another way to talk about it. When, when we sincerely put our trust in Christ Jesus, Jesus secures us to the end. And this security is not only for a little while, it is forever. And that's why it is eternal. Any questions on that or comments? All right. So, I don't know if you ever noticed, the Bible is super connected. Now, we, we divide, like I, I present you, ten categories. But they're somewhat artificial because the Bible is not written as an encyclopedia. Right? You don't have little tabs on the, the text of your Bible saying, you know, um, election, perseverance, salvation, and you just go and all, everything about those doctrines are in those tabs. It's, it's all over. So it's super connected. So when we talk about sanctification, we need to talk about perseverance of saints. And when you talk about the perseverance of saints, you need to talk about other doctrines that are related, like the doctrine of the atonement and the, law, the doctrine of election, because they go together in our sanctification and our persevering to the end. So it's important that we see that those two doctrines in connection to our sanctification. The fact that we are unconditionally elected. You know, all five points of Calvinism go together. Have you ever heard of a Ever heard somebody say, oh, I'm a four-point Calvinist? What they're really saying is that they're very confused. That's really what they're stating. Because, I mean, I'm just sure. People really think that that's, what they, that that's possible. But it's, it's, it's an all-or-nothing issue. Either you, you hold to all five of them, or you don't hold to any of them, at least consistently. Uh, it doesn't work. And, and I made that argument to somebody. Oh, but you're logical. God is not logical. All right. Uh, it's funny because uh, logic is based on the word logos. And my Bible in John 1 says that Christ is the logos of God, is the logic of God. Um, so, but if you're going to throw that argument like there, then you lost the battle anyway. So you just walk away and pray uh, for, for that person. But election means that God has foreordained that the elect will be saved. The elect will not perish. You can look, see that in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, among many other places. Nothing can separate the elect from God's electing love. Isn't that how Romans 8 ends? That nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And because of election, the saints will persevere to the end. So you see how election and sanctification that leads to perseverance are connected there? Because God's, nothing's going to separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We will persevere to the end. And how will we persevere to the end? Through toiling and laboring in our sanctification to become more like Jesus Christ. So that the Spirit is transforming us, as 2 Corinthians 3-18 says, from glory to glory, becoming more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. Any questions on that? The doctrine of the atonement also comes together. The idea that the atonement is limited, that it's, it's focused on the elect, not the entire world. Think with me for a moment. If Christ was actually damned, and I mean here in the literal sense of the word, not as a swear word, if Christ was actually damned by God for the sins of His people, then His people cannot go to hell and be punished for their sins again. Do you follow that? What would happen if somebody for whom Christ died 
went to hell. What would that say about God? He's not God because his double jeopardy which tells us that that fails his justice. Right? So he, if he's a God, he's an unjust God. And he's an unjust God, then we are in really bad shape. Right? But that's what we're saying. If you say that Christ died for every person in the world equally, then there are people in hell for whom Christ hung on the, hung on the cross. Christ paid for his sin, and the Father said, you know what? That's not enough. You're going to go to hell. That's, that's contrary to everything the Bible teaches. So, but for those for whom Christ died, they will grow in sanctification. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. It doesn't say that he may have it, oh, let's cross our fingers that he did. No, it says that he redeemed us from the curse of the law. What is the curse of the law? Hell is part of the curse of the law. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. So Christ became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. And so if that's the case, then you're going to have people who will be made the righteousness of God in hell. If Christ died for everyone. And that is contrary to what the scriptures teach. So those for whom, for whom Christ died will be caused to persevere because their sins have been satisfactorily paid. And that perseverance looks like our becoming more like Christ in our sanctification. Any questions? So you can see how the Bible is all connected. And we separate things to try to look at them more carefully. By the end of the day, we need the whole book, both Old and New Testaments, to have a full picture of who God is. The last part of our lesson is on the actual, uh, spend more time on the scriptures regarding our um, sanctification and then taking a look at the objections to our, uh, to people that, that people bring to this idea that we are per- that we persevere to the end as God works in us as believers. We'll save that for next uh, Lord's Day since we are running up against the clock. So any final thoughts or questions before we close? All right, so let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you're good to us. We thank you that you are preserving us through your spirit. We thank you, Father, that um, sanctification is a work of your grace in which we die more and more into sin, live more and more into righteousness. We pray that we would work out our salvation, that we would live out our salvation with fear and trembling as you are working us to do, to will and to do of your good pleasure. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.